Isaiah chapter 3. Let's pray, and uh, we'll get going. We've got a lot to cover tonight. So thank you, God, for your grace and your mercy. Thank you, Lord, that um, we uh, come to the cross with our sin, our shame, our sorrow, um, our pain. And Lord, you redeem, and you restore, and you reconcile, and you purify. And we thank you for that. I pray, Father, that you would bless this time in your word. I pray that what we would see tonight, and what I think uh, Isaiah wants us to see, is that you take sin very seriously, and there is a, a price to be paid for our transgression, our errors. And, uh, and so, um, just open our eyes to that, and, and just how serious you are about sin. And when we can see that, then we see the beauty of the cross, and Jesus, that you are willing to take that cross. Uh, bless this time, just God and direct us in Jesus' name. Amen. We started Isaiah a few weeks ago. The first five chapters are the crux of the book. It, uh, it, it's in those first five chapters that the vision is given. It says at the beginning of Isaiah chapter 1 that this is one vision. So all 66 chapters deal with one vision that Isaiah was given. And, and so really the, the idea is that the vision itself is given in the first five chapters. And then chapter 6, if you've been around church for very long at all, you know Isaiah chapter 6. You're familiar with when Isaiah is commissioned, when he's called up to the throne of God. And it's a beautiful scene, and we'll get to that next week. And so um, he, uh, that, that's the commissioning. And then from that point... The rest of the book is a breakdown of the first five chapters. He gets into greater detail about what was said in chapters 1 through 5. And so we're working our way through what this vision it is. It is a proclamation. God the Father calls the heavens and the earth to the witness stand, to bear witness against the nation of Israel, and specifically Judah, because Israel and Judah had separated at this point. The civil war had occurred the nation of Israel is going to be taken off by the Assyrians, and, and, and God now dealing with Jerusalem and Judah is coming against them because of the sin that they've committed in saying that they were God-fearing people, but not living it. You would find these people in church every Sunday, but Monday through Saturday they were leave, living like heathens. And, and, and God comes against that in a very, very strong way, and so... Uh, that's what we're in the midst of is this accusation. And we're going to pick it up in, in Isaiah chapter 3, verse 1. And it, it continues. It says, For behold, the Lord, the Lord of hosts, and that's our phrase, the God of Sabaoth, the God of the angel armies, takes away from Jerusalem and from Judah the stock and the store, the whole supply of bread and the whole supply of water, and so he's saying, because of their sin, because of the fact that they didn't honor the Sabbath, that was one of the major sin that, that led them captive to the land of Babylon, was they, they didn't give the land its proper rest. Every one in seven years, there was supposed to be no planting. Every one in 49 years, 50 years, it was the year of Jubilee where things would be restored, and that was an additional year of rest. They didn't give the land its rest as they were commanded. And so God is coming against them. And, he, and this judgment that God is pronouncing is thorough. It's complete. It's devastating. It's ravaging. 
So much so that he's saying, not only are we taking care of what's on the, stock, the stores, shelves, you know, it's, I'm taking care of the stock, I'm going to wipe the stock out, but also the store, everything we've got in reserve, it's all going to be wiped out as well. This is going to be complete destruction. The whole supply of bread and the whole supply of water, they will lose everything and be taken captive to the land of Babylon. It says in verse 2, the mighty man and the man of war, the judge and the prophet and the diviner and the elder, the captain of 50 and the honorable men, the counselor and the skillful artisan and the expert enchanter. These were all the men of stature, the, the leaders of the land, the people that, the, the, the men that the people could look up to. And he's saying in this judgment, you're not going to have anybody to look to. Every, all the leaders of the land are going to be wiped out, either killed or captured. There'll be nobody left to lead the land. So much so that it says in verse 4, I will give children to be their princes and babes shall rule over them. The, the, the men of integrity are, like we said, are going to be completely wiped out or taken away. There's not going to be anybody left to lead the land. So much so that they're going to try to find a kid to put him into position. And in fact, that's what happened. King Manasseh probably, no, not probably, the, definitely the worst king of Judah began his reign at 12 years old. Now think about that for a minute. Think about giving the keys to a country with unlimited resources and unlimited power to a 12-year-old. Do you know a 12-year-old? A 12-year-old boy? No, you don't do that. And that's why it went, well, one of the reasons it went horribly wrong. There was... The, the, the kingship was given to princes and children, and, and babes were ruling over them. That lack of maturity and leadership is going to lead the people to anarchy. They're going to rise up against the government. It's going to be, just become a... Hopefully the picture you get is a hot mess, because that's what it is. It's just a hot mess. It's, a, it's, it's everything that could go wrong will. Verse 5, the people will be oppressed, pressed down, um, uh, ruled over, everyone by another and everyone by his neighbor. This anarchy that's breaking out. The child will be insolent toward the elder and the base toward the honorable. Now we don't see that today at all. We, we don't see children rising up against their parents in any way today, right? That's, you know, that's pretty unusual that that would happen. Oh no, that does happen all the time. Uh, so there is still sin in the land, still sin in today. But the child will be insolent toward his elder. That in that, especially in that culture, where fathers especially were so honored, that would be a hideous crime. To rise up in rebellion against your father was a, a debased thing, and and so they're saying this is this is the low of low. Verse 6, when a man takes hold of his brother in the house of his father, saying, Will you have clothing? You be our ruler, and let these ruins be under your power. Everything's falling apart. Everything's falling apart. We can't find a leader. Hey, you've got a nice set of clothes. Why don't you become the president? Is what they're saying. It's like, it's not a... It's not a matter of calling to them anymore. It's not who would be our best leader. It's like who would be willing to lead us. And it's almost like a popularity contest. And when leadership should be a calling, you should be called to lead, given to get a position given to you by God. 
uh, and, and, and enabled by God. And when we just say, all right, we ain't got anybody else, so you demand, that's a bad state to be in. Or you've, you've got the position because you're the most popular. That's my greatest fear of the coming election, is that we, and as our society today, so much is dependent on popularity. If I can get the most Facebook friends, if I can get the, you know, the most, you know, hearts on my Instagram, then I'm the, I'm the king. And, and we, we take that mentality, many of the younger generation take that mentality into everything that they do. So they don't actually consider who might be the best man. They just would say, who's the most popular? And we'll let him rule us. Well, in God's word, as we're reading, that's not the way we want to be. This is the result of judgment. You have clothing, be our ruler. <laughs> take care of these ruins. It's going to be so bad that nobody even wants to rule. Verse 7, in that day, he will protest. The, the guy that got the, the coat and said, you rule. He will protest saying, I cannot cure your ills. I don't have a way to fix this. For in my house, neither food nor, there is neither food nor clothing. Do not make me a ruler of your people. I don't have anything just like you. The, the, the judgment is complete. The desolation is everywhere. Why would you... Why would I rule this mess? Ultimately, no one wants to rule. So now in verse 8, he's gonna, God is going to restate the need for judgment against Jerusalem. It says in verse 8, For Jerusalem stumbled. Judah is fallen because, here's why, their tongue and their doings are against the Lord to provoke the eyes of His glory. They look on their countenance, the look on their countenance witnesses against them. They, they've got the guilty face even. The look on their countenance, the way that they look. As somebody was talking about this. Have you, ever, you, have you ever seen the progression, the sad progression of somebody that's addicted to either heroin or meth or something like that? As they you know, show up in police reports over the course of a couple of years? You see the, their, their mug shots, you know, a year apart, and they look like they've aged 15 years. Uh, they look like they've aged 20 or 30 years over the course of three or four years. It's a, their countenance displays their sin. It, it takes a toll on their, on their bodies, and that's what the, God is saying here. Their countenance is witness against them. I, you got a guilty look on your face. There was a time, what my old dog, uh, Gracie, um, <laughs> she... One of the times we were out, she had gotten into the trash somehow and had um, gotten a paper plate stuck in the ring of her collar. So when we got home, there was this big paper plate on her, you know, like, like, you know, on her chest. And she's looking at us like, what? What, what did I do? You know, sorry, dog, you're guilty. You know, and that's what God's saying. Like, I say, you got, you got pizza all over your face, right? No, I haven't had any cookies as, they got, as the kid has, you know, black teeth from the Oreos, you know? It's just, they were guilty because their tongues and their doings are against the Lord. And that was the fact. That was the issue. They were proud of their sin. And that left God no option but to judge them. As, we, as I said in my prayer, sin is a big deal to God. We minimize it. We, we, we often overlook it, but to, to God, sin is a big deal. 
so much so that it leaves God no option but to judge the nation. So verse 10 says, Say to the righteous that if it be well with them, for they shall eat the fruit of their doings. Or Say to the righteous that it shall be well with them, for they shall eat the fruit of their doings. The nation was railing against God, but even in the midst of the nation, there was a remnant. There were those who still feared God, and God wants to speak to those that would, would um, press into God in this moment. It, it say to the righteous, it's going to be okay. I'm going to take care of you. The nation, the state of the nation would have been a discouragement to those striving to live righteously. Anybody feel like that today? The state of the nation, a discouragement to the, if you're trying to live righteously? I know I feel that way at times in the consideration of the, the, some of the choices our nation is making. To say, Lord, I just want to follow after you. And, and this, the, our country's going uh, quickly to hell in a handbasket. And so, like Noah in the ark... God is going to protect the righteous from the impending judgment. Like Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah, God removes the righteous, God shields the righteous from the, the, the judgment that is to come. And remember, judgment is not an unfair thing. We, we serve a just God. Judgment is right and deserved and earned. And so um, God is just doing what, in essence, they are asking for. So verse 11, woe to the wicked, it shall be ill with him in comparison to the righteous, for the reward of his hand shall be given to him. Judgment is earned, for, the, for God is just. We, we earn the judgment, the wrath of God. It says in verse 12, as for my people, children are their oppressors, and women rule over them. O oh, my people, those who lead you cause you to err. And destroy the way of your paths. What he's saying here in this verse is that the nation is not running the way God designed the nation to run. This is not the way God designed life to work. God has a set order. God has a set way. And, and the, the children are the oppressors, the women ruling over them. The, those who lead you cause you to err. The leaders are leading them in the wrong dis, de, uh, direction. And so that's not the way God designed life to work. And so he's pronouncing the judgment again. It says in verse 13, the Lord stands up to plead and stands to judge the people. He's standing to make his proclamation. The Lord will enter into judgment within the elders of his people and his princes and he says, for you have eaten up the vineyard. The plunder of the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people and grinding their faces, uh, grinding the faces of the poor, says the Lord God of hosts. We remember that the poor, those the, the destitute, have a soft spot in God's heart. He cares for them in a great way. We saw that in James chapter 5, right? That that. The, the rich were oppressing the poor, and God took issue with that through the book of James. We see that as well here. What do you mean by crushing my people and grinding the faces of the poor? God's going to stand in defense of them, and judgment will come. I want us also to note as we head further into chapter 3, now he's going to make a distinction 
of judgment between men and women even. And he's going to speak to the women of the land um, and, and, and pronounce a judgment on them because of the way that they were acting. And ladies, um, this is something that we, you need to consider as well, that God would, would, come, uh, um, would have a standard for you also. Isaiah, uh, sorry, 3.16. Moreover, the Lord says, because the daughters of Zion are haughty and walk with outstretched necks and wanton eyes, walking and mincing as they go, making a jingling with their feet. So the issue that God has is that they are haughty, that's proud, that's, they're arrogant in their ways, they, they walk with outstretched neck, they're, they're not humble, they're defiant, um, they, uh, and wanton eyes, they're trying to lure men into their entices, and that's the idea of the jingling with their feet, they would wear the, these anklets with bells on them to draw attention to themselves. They were using their beauty to tempt um, and to lure into sin, but they were displaying their sin by a lack of modesty. Modesty is a good thing for a woman in Christ. As I thought about this, I said, what, where, where is the catalyst? Where is the change in a woman? And how, how does it happen that a, a woman suddenly desires modesty and wants to change from the ways of the world into uh, a, a position of humility? And I said, the mark of maturity in Christian women is when they stop using what God has given them, which is beauty and wisdom and skill and talent, when you stop using the attributes that God has given you against your fellow man and start using what God has given you for your fellow man and for uh, specifically for your man if you're married, to see when, when, when you can, the, a sign of maturity in the, in the life of a Christian woman is when you can start using what God has given you not to draw you, a man away from God, but to point him closer to God in your beauty, in your talent, in your, tre- in your skill, in your wisdom. Using all of that, leveraging everything you have to see a man grow closer to Christ. It says, therefore, and this is not pretty, therefore the Lord will strike with a scab. Anybody like scabs? Any ladies looking for scabs? No. Therefore the Lord will strike with a scab the crown of the head of the daughters of Zion, and the Lord will uncover their secret parts. It's not a pleasant judgment that is coming against these women. When the Israelites were taken captive into Babylon, one of the first things that they did, the Babylonians did to the women, was shave their heads. And they didn't do it nicely. They'd just rip the hair out. They would, you know, didn't care if the shears were sharp. Just whatever it took to get this woman looking in, in the eyes of the world ugly. They would, it would, their scalp would bleed. Scabs would be developed. Very often they were taken advantage of because now they were slaves. It wasn't a pretty sight. The, the, these 
This judgment that was pronounced in verse 17 was acted out in the Babylonian captivity. You know, it sadly happened not in our lifetime necessarily, well, for some of us perhaps, but that same thing happened in the Holocaust as well, as Germany did very similar things to the the Jewish people. I don't believe, and I'm not trying to say that the Holocaust was a judgment against Israel or against the people of Israel, as the Babylonian captivity was, but the events were similar, the actions were similar. Still speaking to the women, it says in verse 18, In that day the Lord will take away the finery, the jingling anklets, the scarves, and the crescents, the pendants, the bracelets, and the veils, the headdresses, the leg ornaments, and the headbands, the perfume boxes, the charms, and the rings, the nose jewels, the festal apparel, and the mantles, the outer garments, the purses, and the mirrors, the fine linen, the turbans, and the robes. Does that leave anything? It shall all be completely taken away. And so it shall be, instead of a sweet smell, right? No more perfume. There will be a stench because they hadn't had a bath in months. Instead of a sash, something lovely, a rope. Instead of well-set hair, baldness. Instead of a rich robe, a girding of sackcloth. Could you imagine having to wear a burlap bag all the time. Can you imagine the irritation that would cause your skin and branding instead of beauty? Sad state. This is, the, this, is, this is God's cry to the nation of Israel to say, repent of your ways. This is what's going to happen unless you were to repent. He gives an opportunity for grace each time. Yet they were so blinded, so enthralled with the lust of the world that they refused and they had to walk through this. They were, the, the, the judgment was striking that which gives women stature in the eyes of the world. That, that those things that the world would call beautiful. But what that does is it leaves only that which would, would be beautiful in the eyes of God. And God, man looks at the outward appearance, right? God looks at the heart. And you can strip all the outer adornments from a woman, and to God, she would still be beautiful for her heart. Verse 25, Your men shall fall by the sword, and your mighty in the war. Her gates shall lament and mourn, and she being desolate shall sit on the ground. And in that day, speaking of the judgment, in that day seven women shall take hold of one man, saying, We will eat our own food and wear our own apparel. Only let us be called by your name to take away our reproach. There'll be such a a need for men that seven women will go to one man and say, We'll pay our own way. You know, just marry us, just in name, so that we, we won't be reproached. Sad state. How many women today throw themselves at anyone who would pay them attention? giving away all that they have without even getting married just to avoid the stigma of being labeled alone. It happens all the time in our day and age. I don't want to be, I don't want to be considered an old hag. I don't want to be considered, you know, I, 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 in my social circles, I have to have a man on my arm. 
It's a sad state. And they're willing to give away everything just to avoid that label. There's a crude saying of men today. Uh, you've probably heard it before. But, um, it's, I was trying to decide if I was going to say it or not. But I think to make the point, it's important. Why buy the cow when you can get the milk for free? And that's the state of our society is that I don't have to invest in caring for this woman. I don't have to, um, because she, she so de- desperately doesn't want to be alone that she's willing to give me anything and everything that I want in order to maintain that status. And it's a sad state, and, and the men take advantage of women. The, the sad thing is that women live that every day today. And as I I was typing this out, I just, my heart cried for women that would live unto God the way God has called them to live, that they would strive for purity and righteous, and that that they would would adorn themselves beautifully with modesty. And they wouldn't throw themselves at anything that walks by, but they would seek after a godly man. And that's not a plea for ancient ways or old times or I hope that doesn't make me sound old-fashioned because that's not what I'm trying to do let's get back to the old ways it's a cry for holiness to say ladies rise up and be holy do do what you need to do to chase after God it's a plea for righteous living leveraging everything that you have for the glory of God And as I considered all of that, and what is happening in the world is a sad state. There's a beautiful thing that's happening in the church, capital C, church, with women, I believe. I'm seeing a rise in women leadership in the church across the world. I'm seeing um, women fulfilling their God-given ministries in the church There's a powerful movement of women discipling other women, fulfilling Titus chapter 2, wanting to see other women rise up to glorify God. There's there's these gatherings that are happening all over the nation. Um, There was one this week, the in-joy or uh, the in-gatherings they're called. The one that they had this week was in-pray. And it was a bunch of women that got together uh, somewhere in Florida, just to gather to pray. And there's uh, women that have taken, and, and the blogosphere is, is continually growing, and you can read way too many blogs, but there are several women who have taken to writing blogs to encourage other women to walk in the ways of holiness and to rise up. People like Shelley Giglio, who's Louis Giglio's wife, and um, she's leading a, a, a several hundred young women in a, uh, an event called The Grove that they meet once, to, once a month together. Uh, Beth Moore, Beth Moore's been a name around for a long time. There's a woman named Jen Hatmaker. I don't know if you guys have heard of her. She wrote a book called Seven and the Simplicity of Life. And she, she's, she's very raw and very open, and she's, but she's striving after God and she's encouraging other women. Anne Voskamp and some of the posts that she had when, the, when ISIS beheaded the Christians um, we're strong, we're powerful. Uh, Christine Kane, who is part of the Acts 21 network that uh, um, 
fights against human trafficking all over the world. Um, there's locally, there's a lady named Chris Camille that Michelle is friends with, who's um, just continually, as she posts on Instagram, probably every other day, she just wants to point other women to Christ. And this is, she's just using her example. It's, it's neat to see when God fulfill, or when women fulfill their God-given ministry. I wish there was a greater movement among the men of the church. Sadly, there's a lack of good leadership in young men leaders. I'm not sure if their shoulders are strong enough to handle the load of godly leadership. The, and it falls into this popularity contest, and we bring that into the church too. And if I can be cool enough or hip enough, it doesn't matter what my doctrine is. It's sad. And I worry about guys like Stephen Furtick and Carl Lentz and even Levi Lusco and Judah Smith. That, that Do they have what it takes to continually lead men to God? There are some good guys out there, but not nearly enough. It's a cry for holiness in our lives that we would pursue the righteous living. So as we get into chapter 4, I like this because we saw this in chapter 2 as well. It's almost like God has to say, all right, well, hold up on the judgment for a minute. Let's look, about, let's look to that kingdom that's going to come, the millennial kingdom where, where God will rule and reign. It's going to look to the day of the Lord. Once again, after speaking of judgment, a glorious hope is offered, and we see that continually throughout the book of Isaiah. It says in, in verse 2 of chapter 4, in that day, speaking of the day of the Lord, the branch, capital B, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and appealing for those of Israel who have escaped. And so there, there's going to be on the scene in that day, the great day of the Lord, the day when, when God brings his heavenly kingdom to earth, the millennial reign. In that day, there will be what's known as the branch of the Lord. It's a, a, a title for God. It's a title specifically for the Messiah, the, the branch being the olive branch, the one who offers peace, right? The, the olive branch being a symbol of peace. And it is through Christ and the sacrifice that he made on the cross that you and I who were at war with God can have peace with him once again. And so the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. We see him ruling and reigning, bringing peace between two warring parties, us and God. Because the church will be raptured at that point, those living on the earth will, that we know that God once again is going to deal with the nation of Israel in the great tribulation. And the nation of Israel, their eyes will be opened when the abomination of desolation happens at the three and a half year mark. They're going to see that Jesus, in fact, was the or is the Messiah, and they're going to place their hope in them. So many, if not most of those who actually survive the great tribulation, they make it through the seven year period, will be Jewish. And so they're going to see this Earth, this heavenly kingdom from the perspective of earth. They're going to see the Messiah come and begin his reign as they complete the seven years. It says in verse 3, It shall come to pass 
that he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who is recorded among the living in Jerusalem, those who make it through the great tribulation, it's because they'll have their eyes fixed on Jesus and they, they will have then their sins forgiven. It says in verse 4, when the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and purged the blood of Jerusalem from her midst by the spirit of judgment and by the spirit of burning. They, they go through the tribulation uh, and, 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 and looking at the Babylonian captivity that they went through. Judgment is for the purpose of purity. That God is, is leading them through this for the purpose of holiness, that, that it's not just a punishment for the sake of punishment. It's, it's, a, it's a work so that it can be purified. It's a, a burning up of all the chaff. It's a getting rid of the dross out of the silver. And it takes the, the heat of judgment to do that. It says, Then the Lord will create above every dwelling place of Mount Zion and above her assemblies a cloud and a smoke and smoke by day and the shining of a flaming fire by night. Huh. That sounds familiar. For over all the glory there will be a covering and there will be a tabernacle for shade in the daytime from the heat for a place of refuge and for a shelter from the storm and rain. So as Jerusalem becomes the capital of the world, Jerusalem will experience God's protection and God's shield, a provision and peace in, in this kingdom reign. And it's, it's going to be similar to the transition from, the, from Egypt to the promised land, right? As they wandered through the wilderness, they had the cloud, of, uh, or the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night to guide them and direct them. It's going to be similar in the, in the days of the millennial kingdom. They'll have that protection and that provision as they transition from their Egypt to the promised land of the millennial kingdom. They'll see the, the tabernacle there, a place of refuge. It's at the tabernacle. It's in the Holy of Holies. It's where Christ is on the mercy seat. That refuge uh, takes, we find refuge and shelter. So now chapter 5. And this is a, a parable. You guys understand parables? Have you heard of parables before? It's, it's a a parallel truth. It's, a, it's a, 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 a picture to help us understand a, a greater truth. That's a parable. And Isaiah is going to give now a parable regarding the judgment coming against Judah, against Jerusalem. A parable of rebuke to Judah. So verse 1 of chapter 5 says this, Now let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. So the parable is going to, he's going to liken the nation of Israel to uh, his vineyard. And what I like about this is, this is now not God speaking to the nation of Israel. This is Isaiah speaking to God, right? We get that from verse one. Now let me sing, me small m, let me sing to my capital W, well-beloved, a song of my beloved regarding his, capital H, vineyard. This is Isaiah expressing his heart to his, and his love for God. I, I, I love this. Look at the, as we look at that, look at the admiration in Isaiah. Look at the intimacy that Isaiah has with God. He's calling him his well-beloved. Well, we just got finished teaching the Song of Solomon, right? 
and the, and the parallel between how the Song of Solomon is a parallel between Christ and the church and the, the name that, that is used of Christ is my beloved in the Song of Solomon. And that's what Isaiah here is calling God as well, my well-beloved and my beloved. And he has a very uh, uh, a vineyard on a fruitful hill. I, I just thought that was neat to see that Isaiah has this deep admiration, this intimacy with God. And the reason I think it's important to see that here is because it's chapter 5. All right, what's that got to do? Well, after chapter 5 is chapter 6, right? Not too hard to figure out. But what happens in chapter 6? He gets this great commissioning. He gets ushered up into the throne room of God. He gets the, the coal pressed on his lips. He, he, he hears God saying, whom, whom shall I send? Who shall go for us? And Isaiah responds to that commissioning. Well, in order to get the commissioning of chapter 6, you have to have the belovedness of chapter 5. In order to be commissioned by God, and that's what we need to hear tonight, I think, is, is in order to have that commission of God, you have to be intimate with Him already. In order to get a chapter 6 experience with God, we need to have a chapter 5 love of God. Amen? So he dug it up. Speaking of the vineyard, telling the story now in verse 2, he dug it up and cleared out its stones and planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in its midst, also, gave, also made a wine press in it. So he expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. The vineyard that was God's had all the advantages to be productive. And yet, it brought forth wild grapes, right? He, he cleared out the stones. He made the soil the right way. He, he tended to the soil. He dug it up. He aerated the soil. He planted it with the choicest vines. He picked the best um, branches. He picked the best um, uh, plants. He put a tower in the midst to protect it from the animals and to care for it and tend to it. He made a wine press so that he could press the fruit that would come from it, expecting it to be, bring forth good grapes, and it brought forth sour or bitter, inedible grapes. That's the idea. It brought forth wild grapes, sour, bitter, inedible. In other words, it brought forth grapes that were of absolutely no value to the vine dresser to the one who owned the vineyard. And so now we get the interpretation. Verse 3, And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, please, between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth Wild grapes. And so he calls to the people of Judah, to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. He's speaking both to the leadership and the people. He's asking, what more could I have done to enable you to bring forth good fruit? I provided everything you need. He's speaking to the nation of Israel. I gave you everything you need. I equipped you fully in order to produce good fruit. What more could I have done, he asks. Right? That's verse 4. What more could have been done to my vineyard that I have not done for it? So why then? Rightfully, he was expecting good fruit, and he got bad 
fruit. And what we need to hear, church, is He does the same thing for us. To you and I, He would say, I gave you Jesus. I gave you the best that I had. I, I spared no expense. I sent my Son. Why? What, what more could I have done than give you Jesus? There's nothing that you lack, church. Why then would we produce sour fruit? He's given us everything. So now he's going to speak of the Babylonian judgment that is to come. And the desecration of Jerusalem is going to be complete. We saw that in Ezra and Nehemiah as we studied those. No stone was left upon another. They had to completely rebuild the wall. There was trash and debris and, and overgrowth over all the stones that they had to clear. This judgment will be complete. So it says in verse 5, And now, please let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge. Get that? I'm going to take away the protection. I'm going to take away the covering. I'll take away its hedge and it shall be burned and break down its walls and it shall be trampled down because there's nothing left to protect it. I will lay it waste. Let there be no confusion as to who's in, who's in charge here. I will lay it to waste. It shall not be pruned or dug, but there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds, God in complete control, even controlling the weather, that they rain, uh, that, that they rain no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. There is no question here. There's no debate. This is the, 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 the parable he's giving is in reference to the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant plant. He looked for justice, but behold, oppression. For righteousness, but behold, a cry for help. And he's explaining just so that there is no question who this regarded. And so now he's going to pronounce six different woes. Six things that the people were doing to turn their fruit bitter. A woe is a warning. When you see the word woe in the Scriptures, consider it a warning. Verse 8, Woe to those who join house to house. They add field to field till there is no place where they may dwell alone in the midst of the land. In my hearing, the Lord of hosts said, Truly, many houses shall be desolate, great and beautiful ones, without inhabitant. For ten acres of vineyard shall yield one bath, and a homer of seed shall yield one ephah. In case you don't understand those measurements, which I don't fully, what I do know is that's a pitiful yield. For ten acres of a vineyard to yield one bath, that's horrible. That's how desolate and utterly destructive this judgment will be. Why? The first woe in verse 8 there, those who join house to house and add field to field. The first woe is those who are full of greed. As we said, one of the major parts of the judgment against the nation of Israel was they refused to give the land its Sabbath rest. And part of the Sabbath rest was that in the year of Jubilee, anybody that had given up their land in order to um, they, they sold it in order to gain money or what have you, in that year, they would get their land back. It was a reset that would happen. 
And, and, and that way people couldn't amass great amounts, uh, amounts of land. It was always something that would come every, every generation to kind of reset the nation. And they weren't doing that. And so people could join house to house and field to field. And the rich got richer and the poor got poorer. And, and that's not the way God designed it. So the first woe is that of greed. So verse 11, Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may follow intoxicating drink who continues until night, till wine inflames them. So the second woe or second warning is to those who live for drunkenness and partying, those who would give themselves over to imbibing in the pleasure of wine and alcohol. And there's a, a woe against that. To, to lend themselves to that is a wrong thing. In verse 12, the harp and the strings, the tambourine and the flute, and wine are in their feasts, but they do not regard the work of the Lord, nor consider the operation of His hands. It's because of their, their drunkenness, they, they don't consider anything other than the next party. They're not considering the Lord at all. Therefore, my people have gone into captivity because they have no knowledge. Drunkenness makes you stupid. They're honorable men are famished, and their multitude dried up with thirst. Look at this. Therefore, Sheol has enlarged itself. Sheol is the grave. Sheol, another name for hell. It's enlarged itself. It wasn't big enough. So many people are rushing to get into it that they, he, they had to rebuild it. They're, they're in the rebuilding project to make the grave bigger. The waiting place for judgment is constantly being remodeled to house more people is the idea. Sheol has enlarged itself and opened its mouth beyond measure. Their glory and their multitude and their pomp and he who is jubilant shall descend into it. People shall be brought down. Each man shall be humbled and the eyes of the lofty shall be humbled. But the Lord of hosts shall be exalted in judgment. This is a key verse. And God who is holy shall be hallowed in righteousness. It's in judgment that our view of all is aligned with the proper view of God. It's in judgment that man is brought low and God is exalted. We've talked, we've talked about that through James uh, chapters 3 and 4, that we are aligning ourselves with the wisdom of God. And the, the wisdom of God is to have a proper perspective of ourself and of God. And that occurs through judgment. That's what verse 16, the Lord of hosts shall be exalted in judgment and God who is holy shall be hallowed in righteousness. And the people shall be humbled, it says in verse 15. So 17, then the lambs shall feed in their pasture and in the waste places of the fat ones, strangers shall eat. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of vanity and sin as if it were, as if with a cart rope. So our third woe, Woe to those who draw iniquity. What does that mean? Well, those who would pursue iniquity, those who would bring iniquity upon themselves, iniquity being sin, those who would step into, be intentional or give complete abandonment to sin. They're no longer fighting against sin. They're no longer interested in living a righteous life or a holy life. They just give themselves over. Woe to those who would do that. They, that say, let him make speed and hasten his work that we may see it. This is utter defiance against God. And let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near and come, that we may know it. They're, they're almost spitting in the face of God. I dare you to do it, God. I dare you to bring the judgment. 
Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. So the fourth woe here is for those who would twist the truth. And we live in a society that embraces relativism and postmodernism where truth is a relative statement, and if it's true for you, then that's okay. There are no absolutes. It's a ridiculous thought. It completely defies the Word of God. Woe to those who would change God's definitions of right and wrong to justify sin. Changing the definition of marriage as an example. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight, verse 21 says. So the fifth woe is pride. Pride um, skews our view of ourselves. It, it changes the way we look at ourselves. We, we, become more, we exalt ourselves in our own eyes. Uh, Jeremiah 17, verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Your heart, prior to Christ entering in, dis- deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And yet we listen to our heart, especially when it's speaking of ourselves. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes. You know what? No one lies to you more than you. No one lies to you more than you because the heart is deceitfully wicked. Verse 22, Woe to the men mighty at drinking wine. Woe to, the men, to men valiant for mixing intoxicating drinks. So is he speaking to bartenders here? No. Woe just, who justify the wicked for a bribe and take away justice from the righteous man. So one of the, the second woe was to those who were in, in revelry and drunkenness and partying. So why would he repeat him, repeat that in the sixth woe? And I don't think that's what he's saying. If you combine verse 22 and 23, what we see is it's not a drunkenness on wine as much as it's a drunkenness on power. And, 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 and woe to those that would corrupt their power and use it as a a strong intoxicating drink who justify the wicked for a bribe and take away justice from the righteous man. Woe to those who would be drunk with power. Finishing up the chapter. Therefore, as the fire devours the stubble and the flame consumes the chaff, so their root will be as the rottenness and their blossom will ascend like dust because they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. The idea there, the, the judgment will be complete. Does fire, fire devour stubble? Oh yeah. It leaves nothing. Fire devouring stubble is complete. Flame consumes chaff? Yes, completely so. Why? Because they rejected the law of the Lord of hosts. So 25. Therefore, the anger of the Lord is aroused against His people. He has stretched out His hand against them and stricken them. And the hills trembled. Their carcasses were as refuse in the midst of the streets. For all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. He will lift up a banner to the nations from afar and will whistle to them from the ends of the earth. Like calling a dog. 
He, he, all the nations of the earth bow to the king of kings, whether they recognize him or not. And, and he's going to call Babylon. He's going to whistle to them from the end of their... Surely they shall come with speed, swiftly. All, all the people of, of the earth are tools in the hands of God. No one will be weary or stumble. This is speaking of those coming against the nation of Israel. No one will be weary or stumble among them. No one will slumber or sleep. Nor will the belt on their loins be loose, nor the strap of their sandals be broken. Everything's going to go right for them. They're not even going to grow tired in taking, their, taking Israel captive, whose arrows are sharp and all their bows bent. Their horses' hooves will seem like flint and their wheels like a whirlwind. Their roaring will be like a lion. They will roar like young lions. Yes, they will roar and lay hold of the prey and they will carry it away safely and no one will deliver in that day, they will roar against them like the roaring of the sea. And if one looks to the land, behold, darkness and sorrow, and the light is darkened by the clouds. And that completes the vision that began in chapter 1. That which will come against Israel will be complete. God's going to enable the nation of Babylon. He's going to give them the strength, give them the power, give them the authority to just completely execute the judgment of God. We need to remember as we consider these things that God's judgment is righteous against the people of Judah because their bodies were in church, but their hearts were not. Now, that's the way we would liken it on today. If you go back to chapter 1, that was the accusation against the nation of Israel. Don't, he would say, don't even bring me sacrifices anymore. They don't mean anything. They were, they were going through the motion of living out the church life, of living out the godly life, but their hearts were so far from God that it was hypocrisy to the utmost degree. That was the problem that God was having with the nation of Israel. Their hearts were far from them, though their bodies were in church. Their lives didn't line up with that which they said on Sunday. Guys, I think... One of the things that we can take is a call to holiness. And that's what this is. A call to holiness is not something that we can take off and put on when it's convenient for us. Holiness means that we're set apart for the use of God. That word holiness means set apart. If we take that off, then we're not set apart. Woe to us. May we not take in all that God has given us in Jesus and neglect to live the or neglect the command to live unto him. There was one line toward the end there that caught my attention. At the end of verse 25. For all this his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. Yes, the judgment is complete. Yes, the judgment is righteous and deserved. But his hand is stretched out still. The hand of rescue. The hand of redemption. The nail-scarred hand is reaching out, saying, come unto me. And we praise him for that, that he's made a way that we might not be subject to the wrath of God. And that is through His Son, Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's stay on this closing prayer. Thank You, Lord, for Your grace and Your mercy. I thank You for um, 
the opportunity to study your word tonight and for these people willing to set aside time on a Wednesday night just to come before you and to offer our reverence unto you, to declare that your name and your renown is worth our time, to be refreshed in your word, Lord, we thank you. I pray that you would go before us, Lord. And if we, if we want to take off the cloak of righteousness, if we want to set aside our holiness that we may imbibe in the pleasures of this world, Lord, help us to repent of that. Help us to stop living with one foot in each kingdom. For that's not holiness at all. I pray that we would heed the woes because Jesus, there was nothing more that you could give. You gave everything that we might have all that we need to come under the presence of God. So I pray that we wouldn't take that lightly, Lord, that we would dedicate our lives to living for your glory, responding in thanks and praise and adoration, declaring with our lives that we love you, Lord, as we close in song. In Jesus' name, amen.